Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. 
It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. They think that like one person is their path. You were saying about one those people losing uh-huh. all their friends um, when they meet someone. And I think that's really problematic because your person can't be your everything that's um, not going to realistically fulfill you. And, you know, given yeah. just the, the prevalence of relationships ending, it seems like a really poor investment to like take all your, let's just say metaphorically, take all your your diverse portfolio and put it into one risky stock seems pretty crazy. And Srini, you know, I don't want to turn the tables on you, um, yeah. but I was wondering if, um, would you feel comfortable if yeah, I asked you a little bit of Okay. And please, uh, you know, interrupt me because you're not sitting in my private room. I realize we have a large audience. Um, yeah. But if you like, if you did not feel anxious about your age or um, if you didn't feel like your past experience was affecting your present, what would be different in your mind about your dating life? I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Jenny, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me, Srini. I'm excited to, to join. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I realize that Amazon's algorithms are freakishly aware of what is actually happening in our lives, because for some reason, your book showed up in my recommendations, uh, and it was titled How to Be Single and Happy. And I thought, eh, I'm skeptical. And then I saw the subtitle, Science-Based Strategies for Keeping Your Sanity. And I thought, okay, this is really up my alley. And I read it, and I realized, I was like, wow, this is a book about far more than being single which uh, and being happy, but it's a book about living a great life, which you even mentioned at the very end of the book. But before we get into all that, I want to ask you a question that I think is very fitting given the subject matter of your work, and that is what social group were you a part of in high school, and what impact did that end up having on the choices you've made? with your life and your career? What did you learn from that experience that has shaped who you've become? Hmm. I I knew, uh, as I mentioned to you before we started taping that, I I know you were going to ask hard questions. So that is definitely one that is thought provoking. Um, You know, I had an interesting experience in high school. I went to a smaller um, religious school and um, it wasn't like this, like, typical school where there's like the cool kids and the, you know, academic kids. And it was kind of like this warm, um, positive, friendly environment that was kind of focused on, I know this sounds really strange when I, when I say high school, but it was really focused on like being a good person. Um, and I, I mean, I wonder if it's different today because this was, um, you know, pre social media. Um, but you know, the group that I was a part of was like sort of, you know, people that were trying to like think about what they wanted long-term in life and how to be a better person because that was sort of the culture of the school. Mm -hmm. Um, That being said, uh, there was sort of this big focus because again, it was a religious school on um, meeting a person and sort of like there there was a bigger focus on sort of like finding your like boyfriend or life partner rather than like what's your dream career sort of that it was less of a school where I felt like my professional dreams were being, um, cultivated. And it was more about like, sort of, you know, the purpose in life is to, um, 
live according to your virtues and values. And so a, a big part of my book and a big part of my work is helping people tap into that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the one value that was sort of missing was um, a focus on career. All right. Well, that, that's interesting. So I read a piece uh, a couple of years, sometime last year or the year before that ended up going viral. It was titled What We Should Have Learned in School But Never Did. And one of the things that uh, I think, you know, being 41 and single, I, I thought it was really strange is, is that this is, seems like such a fundamental life skill to figure out how to interact with the opposite sex and to, you know, meet somebody. And yet... Um, it's kind of left out of pretty much all of our early adolescence. Like it seems like something that we're forced to figure out through trial and error. And, and I wonder as, as somebody who has this perspective, as somebody who professionally practices this, uh, do you think this is something we should be teaching in schools? I absolutely do. And one of um, the things that's interesting to me is there's a movement to get some of the things that I specialize in, um, which is teaching people emotion regulation, mindfulness, um, distress tolerance, which is how to cope with intense emotions and how to be interpersonally effective in high schools. And I think that that would be brilliant. It seems like that's far more applicable to long-term success than something like, you know, calculus or, um, AP history. Uh, so I really do hope that this is taught in schools. And I should also mention that I went to, uh, you know, an all girls school, um, which did, I think, you know, a lot of my book talks about my own personal experience and going to an all girls school sort of did kind of, um, lead to sort of even more pressure of like, you got to find your partner without the sort of, um, experience of being around, um, you know, guys day to day, which made it even more anxiety provoking. Yeah. Well, so, so I wonder about this. I mean, you've, I'm guessing been exposed to a wide variety of people. And, and so, you know, I think about this from, from two different standpoints, right? Why are there some people who seem to basically hit their stride in this sense, like in this aspect of their life when they're young or in high school? And then why do you get somebody who gets out of you know college or ends up like me at 25? I was like, wow, I'm 25. And, and I realized the only reason I got in a relationship with the first girl I dated was because I was like, I got to cross this off my list because, and, and I knew going into the relationship, I was like, I'm going to break up with this girl. Uh, at some point, I've already made that decision three weeks into the relationship. And there's one other aspect of this. And I wonder, you know, kind of what your work has shown about this is what role culture plays in all of this, because, you know, you come from an Indian culture and it, there's a really hilarious Hasan Minhaj joke where he says, you know, your first like 20 years of your life, your parents are like, don't talk to girls, you know, focus on your studies. And then, you know, you roll up to 25 and then they're like, why the hell don't you have a girlfriend? Like, why can't you talk to girls? Uh, so I wonder, you know, what your work has shown about this from, from cultural perspectives, as well as like, why do you see this sort of variation in development in this area of somebody's life, uh, you know, across different groups? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's totally understandable if someone had this experience of like, don't talk, you know, I, it sounds similar to actually my experience in religious Jewish school. Um, to like this premium of like, you know, don't talk unless it's like for the purpose of marriage. And then it's like this huge leap of like not speaking to like picking your life partner, which is really a big kind of a jump and um, disorienting. And I just want to make clear, like I, I really, really balance like this um, intense interest about how like our backgrounds like shape where we are right now. Like, of course, I think our um, childhood experiences really like kind of like shape um some sort of imprint of who we are today. But I also think that it's something that we could always change because a lot of people will come to my office and tell me something like, you know, I was always rejected in high school or I was always, um, you know, had a hard time making friends. And I, and they sort of like, it seems like in part of them saying that is this assumption that that's going to be pervasive and that's going to continue and it's going to 
sort of haunt them for the rest of their lives. But I truly believe, and this is one of the reasons why I wrote my book, that at any moment, you know, we could just sort of shift gears and use tools to kind of transform our lives in the way we want them to be shaped, even if it wasn't from our past experience. If we weren't taught that at home or school, we could sort of teach ourselves that right now and then, you know, design sort of like the life that we want. Obviously, it's it's a little harder if we've had negative uh, past experiences or there's social stigmas and or, you know, um, ideologies that have sort of left us feeling more vulnerable. Um, yeah. But I, I don't think. So uh, how do you prevent uh, past experiences from causing you to make, you know, d- like decisions in your future that limit what's possible. And I'll give you context for this. I had a bad breakup with an Indian girl and I was like, that's it. I'm done with Indian women. And my, my old business partner, Brian was like, dude, you can't swear off an entire race of women, particularly your own. <laughs> like that's insane. And, and I realized, like, yeah, okay, that is a good point. Like that is a very sort of limited perspective on things. So I, I wonder, you know, having gone through a, a bad experience, how you, you know, one, integrate the valuable lessons from that. And yet don't let that dictate your future decisions. I love that. That is such a good question. I think if we could all, if we could all sort of understand that we would all be feeling a lot like freer um, and inching closer to like our best life. You know, I think a huge part of that is just like sort of being really specific about like what didn't work with um, that person and what you learned from that in like a lot of specific detail, because there's a huge difference between judgments, which is like sort of like global um evaluations and appraisals like good bad you know the, the, I'll never work out with this category, larger category yeah. and and we could all replace judgments with statements of fact or preference um so I realized that like I need someone that's you know instead of me saying I hate all um whatever you know big category let's say I hate all of uh you know people that are like this I specifically mm-hmm. don't like people that talk about X, Y, and Z. Um, yeah. and I much prefer this. So I think in a huge way to sort of like become less, not, uh, less non-judgmental is through the practice of mindfulness. So mm-hmm. mindfulness means like, even if I had food poisoning at this restaurant, if I go back and I'm super like in the moment, I, of course, my mind is going to keep going back to like my past negative experience, but I have to keep coming back to the right here, right now just this one moment at a time, this one step at a time. And it's, it's really hard. You know, I had this experience. It's kind of silly, but, um, I just had a baby and, uh, all the places that I went to that I was really nauseous. I like, don't want to go back to, and I've had to like slowly, like reintroduce myself to going back to places like, you know, like Barry's boot camp gave me this visceral reaction of like intense nausea when I was pregnant. Um, and the only reason that I went to Barry's boot camp when I was pregnant is because I practice everything that I preach and, you know, believe that we should you know, live our best lives regardless of circumstances. But, um, I really had to sort of like keep going and it wasn't probably till the third or fourth time, um, that I didn't feel nauseous just from walking in there. Uh-huh. Uh, does that make, well, does that make any sense? Yeah, no, no, it absolutely does. And I, I'm so glad you brought up that you're a parent because that may, you know, raises this question for me. If, if, you know, somebody who's a parent who knows all of this, do you think that, you know, and I realize you just had a baby, so it might be a crazy question, but I, I'm still curious. Like, do you think that your child is going to be immune to all of the, you know, sort of woes of, of net finding romance that most people deal with? Uh, and, you know, what do you think parents should teach their kids about this? Because I think the the thing, the realization that I came to, even in my exploration of this, when I wrote that article about what we should have learned in school that never, but never did, was that I didn't have a model for what you know finding courtship looks like because my parents had an arranged marriage, so my dad didn't know 
he didn't have any advice to pass on, uh, you know, it, and that led me of all places to the seduction community, which I want to ask you about, uh, given your perspective on all of this. But as a parent, what do you think parents should be teaching their kids about this? Because we have a lot of parents who are listening to this. Yes, um, Srini, I'm so impressed. I just want to take a step back and say I'm so impressed with your thoughtful questions. Um, and I, you know, and I kind of relate to some degree with your experience with your parents not teaching you while I, I, um, wrote a popular article in the New York Times um, about my parents' divorce when I was uh, a child and how that affected, um, you know, I wrote a little bit about how that affected me. But I think sometimes bad experiences can be powerful, um, eye-opening experiences and our best teachers if we see them as such. And so um, I think my parents' divorce when I was quite young, when I was six, um, really sort of led me to think through, you know, I'd rather have like a really good relationship and just marry the first person. Like my parents sort of married each other kind of in a state of um, urgency to get married and kind of like taking off some criteria off each other's boxes um, rather than sort of really feeling a strong connection and having strong long-term, uh, significant long-term shared goals. Um, but yeah, so I think sometimes, you know, for people listening that think like, wow, I've been through a hell, um, or my parents weren't good models, like exactly like how you said, um, that could be a powerful lesson. You know, that could be like, if we see that as a source of inspiration, not desperation, we could use that to, um, really give us information. And I think, um, good therapy can sort of, and it does, good therapy doesn't mean long therapy doesn't have to be for years of your life. Um, but a combination of some insight plus a lot of ability to get really clear about what you want your life to be about and skills to help you get there um, mm-hmm. can help you sort of override past uh, painful experiences. Yeah. And I'm curious, um, you said something about the seduction community. I'd love to follow up with well, that. Yeah, no, no. I also wanted to ask you as a parent, you know, before we get to that, oh, like, as, sure. a, as a new parent, like, do you think that you being somebody who has this background, uh, you're going to have a child who's immune to many of the, the challenges that somebody faces with, you know, romance and, and navigating this sort of male female dynamic? Because I, I've had, you know, guests here, I was like, oh, yeah, my parents are therapists. That doesn't mean I like grew up perfect. In fact, I think I might be more screwed up because of it. Uh, so, like, I, I wonder, you know, how you think about that. Like, you know, obviously you have a, a knowledge base that most of our parents don't come to this with. You know, this is a really hard time. Um, I just think this app based dating and social media are. Um, doing so much that it, no matter what I do, it's, I'm going to be have a hard time um, undoing the pain that those avenues are creating. Um, specifically, yeah. like app based dating, where people like think it's it's socially acceptable to go on a date with someone, um, sleep with a person, and then never call them again. I talk a lot about this in my book and how extremely mm-hmm. painful this is to our core. Um, you know, I, I wish I could. <laughs> this would actually be my dream to like get on some sort of like do some sort of large scale talk and create some culture change around like we live in such a difficult time. Like why are people behaving like their worst selves when people are, mm-hmm. are going on dates and someone's vulnerable and the person sitting across from you isn't just like a picture that you clicked on, but actually like a real person that has feelings and a heart and is doing their best. And um, just given statistics, there's like a pretty good chance that, you know, one in five people that you're going on a date with might have a, um, be struggling with serious anxiety or sadness. Um, and so mm-hmm. I just hope to change. I, I wish there was something I could do to um, 
inculcate my children from uh, well, romantic pain, but it seems like there's so yeah, much overriding that. I, I want to come back to the dating app thing. I think it's it's important. Um, you know, like I think the it's Cal Newport, who was just here recently. We, you know, he wrote a new book called Digital Minimalism, and, it, and he was talking about this. And you know, one of the things I it, this you know really caught my attention when you said it. Um, in the book, it was, you know, about ghosting. And it was basically, I think what you said, it was like basically one of the most, you know, uh, biggest forms of invalidating somebody. And I, I can tell you from having gone through that experience where literally after four dates, somebody will, lit, I'll, I'll never hear from that again. And I'm always baffled by that. I'm like, look, great. You don't want to see me again. Fine. At least have the decency to tell me after we've hung out four times, you know? Uh, and Cal Newport said that, you know, when you take an evolutionary drive, this is what you said, meeting someone promising who then disappears without apparent cause or explanation is the epitome of invalidation. And, you know, Cal Newport said that, you know, he said, when you take technology and you start monkeying around with evolutionary drives, like the need to date somebody, he said, the consequences of that are, are dangerous. He said, you end up with situations like the ones that you're talking about. Uh, Terry Cole, I think that was the first interview I sent you. She even said, she's like, this is not a hotbed of mental health, if, if you want to be honest. And Nick Dotis, who was the dating coach that I did some work with, he told me unanimously across the board, he said, the guys that he has that deal with the most problems are the ones who meet the people that they're dating on dating apps. And so I, I really am curious, like, you know, is there a way out of this mess? Uh, you know, like this as a default way of meeting people seems really it's it's dodgy to in my mind because I mean I, I I think in all honesty you literally swipe right or left based on what I sleep with this person. Yeah, no, that's all the information you really have. Um, uh, meeting someone in this two dimensional world, but no, I mean I think you know just to be like uh, I specialize in this therapy called dialectical behavior therapy, which is uh, focused on seeing um, things and sort of. Uh, Synth finding the synthesis rather than all or nothing terms. I mean, I think increasingly this is becoming a reality and there are constantly people in the New York Times wedding section uh, that are saying that they met on apps and um, it is affording people an opportunity to meet people that they might never meet. That being said, I think we really need to remember that the person sitting in front of us has feelings and um, not following up with them after four dates is just rude. And if, you know, you wouldn't bump into someone in the store or like hit someone's car and drive off. It's, it's really inappropriate to do that just because it's, you're doing it through an anonymous platform. Um, and yeah. so I think people really need to sort of like tap into like how to date better, especially if technology is making it much harder to do so. Mm -hmm. Well, let's go to the, the seduction community. I mean, I, I think I found my way there through, you know, random Google searches. I mean, this was years before Neil Strauss even wrote the game. Like I was, I remember reading sections of the game and I was like, okay, I remember these moments because I was there and I was like, wow, a group of guys and destroyed an entire neighborhood of a city, uh, which happens to be LA where women stopped going to the sunset strip for about two years because oh of gosh. this. Yeah, it's it's insane. And, you know, one of the things when I look back at this, and I, I was really reluctant to share this for a long time, but then I finally wrote about it in an article because I was like, I got to get this out there uh, just to get it off my chest to say, you know what, I was part of a cult. Um, and one of the things I think that people, you know, didn't realize was that, you know, many of the people came there with good intentions. But if you take a charismatic leader and put them in front of people with good intentions uh, who are vulnerable, they'll end up doing a lot of stupid things. Um, and that's not just isolated to the seduction community. That's any sort of cult. And so as somebody who does the work that you do, I wonder, what do you, how do you view that? Particularly not just as a, a person who does the work that you do, but as a woman who does the work that you do. Yeah. You know, I see a lot of male clients that are adamant that like, um, 
the seduction community has some sort of like fast path to, um, you know, success with women that I can't, I'm not giving, offering them through, um, my more sort of like science-based, less like sketchy directives. Um, and my sort of sense is like, do you want to be nice or do you want to like do something kind of like creepy? Um, and I think ultimately like kindness pays off, obviously, um, you know, you can't, uh, uh, I, I don't want, I don't know tons and tons about the seduction community. Um, but I, I just know some concepts of like insulting someone and then assuming that that will make them like go out right. to dinner with you. That just seems kind of like totally crazy to me. And like, sure, maybe that will get you a date, but does that mean that you and this person are setting yourselves up for a healthy, longstanding relationship? Probably not. If it started with an insult and someone feeling less than, um, that seems pretty awful. Um, just an interesting side note. I am like really like motivated to get my book into people's hands because I just think that so many of the titles in the dating, um, category are so dismissive and hurtful. Um, you know, the, some of the leading bestsellers in the like dating category are things like why men love bitches, mm-hmm. act like a man, think like a woman. Um, you know, the game is obviously quite popular. And so I noticed that um, I love book talks. I just like love hearing authors uh, talk about their book and answering questions. So I noticed that Neil Strauss um, was giving a talk. Uh, Neil Strauss wrote this book, The Game. And I sort of like had in my mind um, that he was like, I wasn't going to like him because I don't like that book. Yeah. And I was prepared to hate him. Um, and I went to his book talk. He was giving a talk at uh, this bookstore uh, called Book Soup in West Hollywood. I went and then I decided, you know what, like I want to just like talk to people that I think different, I might think differently from. And I would love the opportunity to sit down and share ideas and exchange um, thoughts with someone that I might not agree with. And so I approached him after the talk and um uh, we exchanged information and now I consider Neil Strauss to be like a friend. Um, uh-huh. and I think we think more similarly and I think increasingly like leaders of the seduction community are coming around and sort of really interested in, um, helping people live according to what they want their life to be about rather than playing games. Um, yeah. and sure, like you could, you could win a game through, um, sneaky maneuvers, but that's not really like winning your best life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny because I mean, I, I had a chance to meet Neil briefly, but it, you know, it was he'd always struck me as somebody who was very smart and thoughtful, and, and I, you know, he was kind of an anomaly in the community in that he had come from this really bizarre background as a journalist, and uh, it, it was one of those things I think for most people what they don't realize is <clears throat> you get sucked into this whole thing, and it just starts to become your life after a certain point because you want this thing so badly, and yet you realize that I think by the time, you know, most people come up for air, they're like, wait a minute, this very thing that I say I want so badly is literally the cause of my misery and all my problems. Uh, but before we get into the the science, I think I want to get there in a way that probably nobody has ever asked you uh, before. And that is tell me about the first time you fell in love. You know, I, I think a lot about this and it's, it's hard to say because I think I fell in lust a lot, um, which was like this initial like attraction, um, uh, either because someone's really hilarious and there's like this instant sense of like, wow, this person like brings me so much joy or instant physical attraction. Um, uh, so I think I've had that like instant thing, which, you know, then led to like having some sort of relationship with 
the, the people that I've had that with, um, two people specifically come to mind, um, that I had this instant attraction and then we kind of had this longer relationship for several years. Um, but that was kind of fake. It was kind of like, you know, coming back to the seduction community, it was like based on like this false premise. And I, thought a lot about this and I don't want to sound like overly romantic or um, sappy because um, relationships do take a lot of work. But, I, you know, when I met my husband, um, which was after I had uh, been engaged and had this like dramatic, this is all in the book for people that are interested um, uh, in case you're thinking that it's totally weird for a psychologist to share her personal experiences. I, I really believe that we're kind of like all in the same soup and we all are similar and um, share similar experiences. And I thought that people would understand um, that I really get it if they got that I was in their same shoes. But I, um, you know, like I was mentioning, I, my parents got divorced when I was really young. I went to this religious school where the premium was not on like getting into like Stanford. It was like getting married. And um, which was weird for me because I was really uh, sort of career focused because my mom had gotten divorced. And I had this sense that um, I really needed to build my career and be independent because who knew what would happen in the um, relationship uh, space. And I um, dated a bunch in college. And um, then I got engaged after college. My college roommate introduced me to some guy she met and she said that he was going to be my husband. And then we went out and he was attractive and charismatic. And um, he proposed, a, you know, a I don't know, a little after a year into our relationship and it was this dramatic thing in Paris. And then I sort of started, um, really realizing that like in terms of my prescription for happiness, like I wasn't following it and I wasn't like, you know, I'm really into, um, getting really clear about what you want your life to be about long-term. Um, and I just realized that long-term we had differences and wanted different things. And actually like the things that he was passionate about and the things that mattered to me were totally at odds. And it was really difficult for me, but we ended our engagement. And then I sort of really like started living the life that I was teaching my patients about, um, you know, building a life worth living regardless of your circumstances. And from that place, I like, you know, went on a date with my husband who I had met like years prior and, um, nothing really happened. We like met quickly at a party and, I spoke for a few minutes and then we re-met years later and, um, I didn't start out as lust. I mean, I thought he was like kind of attractive, but I, I, I thought he was attractive, but I didn't, um, shouldn't say kind of, I, I was attracted to him, but I was just very like centered and balanced and sort of focused on like, my life is great. If I meet someone that's great. If I don't, that's great. So I wasn't sort of, yeah. um, idealizing him or assuming that he was like my key to the happiness door. And from that place, it sort of became like, my love for him grew moment to moment and he surprised me pleasantly moment to moment rather than like my previous relationships, which was like, I, this person was like the greatest. And then it was like a total fall from grace weekly. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this you know person I thought was the greatest would, you know, bail on yeah. plans with me or call me at midnight on a Saturday to see what I was up to, which isn't a great time to really build a close relationship. Uh-huh. So, yeah, wow. so I think love takes work and it's really sort of like you and the person, like getting to know each other and being vulnerable and everything, by the way, that I did with him in terms of the art of seduction was like the opposite of the art of seduction. <laughs> yeah. um, I told him, I think on like date three, like, hey, um, I'm going to LA next week. Oh, what are you up to? Why are you going to LA? Oh, because I'm thinking about moving there. Uh -huh. um, like every person would say that you don't tell some guy that you went on date four with in New York that you might be moving to LA. But that was actually like a really meaningful conversation. It opened the door to like, wow. Um, so you might be moving to LA. So like, like, is that next month? Like, when are you thinking? Yeah. And we sort of started this relationship with, um, being honest and 
real and like treating the person that you're dating like you would treat a good friend rather than like some weird poker game. Uh-huh. Well, I think it's, it's interesting that you bring up one that it was the opposite of the art of seduction. And I'm glad you brought up that book because, I mean, I remember I was in an interview with Chase Jarvis at Creative Live. I you know, said, you know, like I underline and highlight all my books. And the one book that I hope no woman I'm dating ever picks up off of my shelf is the art of seduction because she'll conclude that I'm a sociopath based on everything that I've underlined. Um, so there are two things I think you said that really struck me as interesting is as you make this distinction between love and lust. And, and when you said that, it kind of made me think it's like, OK, you know what? Like all these girls that I thought were amazing, to be honest, it was probably lust more than anything else because it was based largely on first impressions, not multiple impressions. Uh, so like there, there is something that you had actually said in the book that I thought was interesting, and I want to come back to that. But let, let's actually get into the science of this because I think this is where it really – like the book really resonated with me enough to make me want to reach out to you and actually have you as a guest. I mean, one of the very first things you said is what happens when you worry continuously about ending up alone? The answer is that you actually lose your mind or rather your ability to think clearly. And I think that you know you you get to my age or even in my culture, there's this pressure. And I've seen – people under immense amounts of pressure, either from their parents or you know, implicit pressure because they've had a sibling get married or something like that, who I've, I've seen make decisions where I'm like, wow, I honestly thought that person either could have done better or that that person only made that decision because of the pressure. And I mean, I've had friends who literally have who stopped talking to the rest of their friends the moment they met their significant other. And so, so I wonder, you know, from a cultural perspective, how do you navigate this? But also, you know, you talk about this idea of worrying continuously. So how do you stop this, you know, constantly worrying? Right. So um, just for people out there that are listening and wondering, like, what I have to back up, uh, this idea that when you anticipate being alone, like you lose your mind, there's an amazing study that was one of the sources of inspiration for this book. And this book what really started out as a question, like, um, can you be single and happy? Because I, I was practicing as a psychologist in New York for many years before I I recently moved to LA and so many people would tell me like, look, like you seem like a nice person and like a smart therapist. And I know that you um, are trying your best, but unless you could like deliver me the guarantee that I'm going to meet my person, I, you know, I don't know how much you could do for me. And so I started exploring, like, is this true? This, you know, socially perpetuated myth, you know, fueled by shows like The Bachelor and, um, you know, people taking tons of pictures of engagement rings on Instagram and it being all the news that, you know, some uh, successful, attractive actress is divorced or is still single or whatever her status is. So is it possible for someone to to uh, be single and happy? So that sort of uh, was a question that I raised. And then in starting to like do some research around that, I stumbled upon this paper um, about anticipated aloneness reducing intelligent thought. And in this uh, experiment that led to the paper, um, people were told, people were given some um, math questions, like an IQ test sort of thing, um, and uh, just a short one, and then um, told persuasively, one set of people was told persuasively that they would end up alone later in life, and then given the same set of math problems, and they performed much worse on the second set after being told that. And we don't realize like when we're um, sitting alone that we're just not thinking clearly, even if you've gone on, you know, hundreds and hundreds of bad dates uh, for years that has nothing to do with your future. Um, And so we need to remind ourselves in moments when we're like ruminating about what our future looks like based on our past, that we're just actually potentially creating a negative self-fulfilling prophecy and being a terrible bully to ourselves rather than a cheerleader and, uh, you know, life hacker creator. 
Um, mm-hmm. And I do think that one reason that people do struggle when they're single is because they, they, uh, they think that like one person is their path. You were saying about one of people losing uh-huh. all their friends um, when they meet someone. And I think that's really problematic because your person can't be your everything. That's um, not going to realistically fulfill you. And, you know, given yeah. just the, the, prevalence of relationships ending it seems like a really poor investment to like take all your let's just say metaphorically take all your your diverse portfolio and put it into one risky stock seems pretty crazy and Srini you know I don't want to turn the tables on you um yeah I was wondering if um would you feel comfortable if I asked you a little bit of okay and please uh, you know interrupt me because you're not sitting in my private room I realize we have a large audience um but if you like if you did not feel anxious about your age or um if you didn't feel like you're past experience was, um, affecting your present, what would you, what would be different in your mind about your dating life? Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. 
It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Um, well, I don't think it would be a source of stress or anxiety for one. Like I wouldn't feel like, oh, you know, like I, I mean, my joke is that I got two years off because my sister just got married and Indian weddings are all consuming. So like the moment she got engaged, everybody was kind of like, cool, like we're busy focusing on this. And even recently, my parents were like, yeah, by the way, take your time to meet somebody. They're like, we just had a really big wedding so we could use use a break between you and your sister. And I'm like, cool. But uh, but yeah, I think it would it would stop being this source of anxiety. So I'll tell you what it is. Uh, you know, when I up until 2014 or 2015, the elephant in the room was that here I was building unmistakable creative writing books and I was living at my parents' house because I wasn't making enough money. And I'm like 30 late in my late 30s, postgraduate school, living at my parents' house and people are wondering what the hell I'm doing with my life. Like, is this a waste of, of my education and all that? So naturally it was like, okay, I'm not going to date. Like, it's just not really like, I don't feel it, it's realistic. So then that problem was solved. And the next sort of thing that became this sort of all consuming problem was, okay, now that I'm finally out, how do I meet somebody? And, you know, I mean, like one of my friends said, he's like, yeah, if you treat it like a problem to be solved rather than a process to be enjoyed, then it's going to be miserable. And it was. Um, So I, I think that to me, more than anything, is it would it would stop being this source of stress and anxiety. Uh, and I would also probably not let it dictate uh, a lot of what I've done. And, and you know, and nowadays, like I've made it a point to be like, look, I'm not going to let this determine how I spend my time and my energy. You know, like I booked surf trips and snowboard trips and I was like that. Those are going to be my priorities if I'm not dating somebody. Uh, and they will be even after I'm dating somebody. So I guess, you know, I don't know if that's exactly an answer to your question. Right. And I, I do think like, you know, one of the prescriptions that I certainly write is like thinking about what your life would look like if you did have that person by your side and start living that life now. So I'm so happy to hear that you're doing like your trips and the things that you would, um, you know, enjoy regardless. But I do think even just like what you said to me was really striking. Like, it seems like you didn't really date for until a couple of years ago. And so I think even just shifting the narrative, like I'm not is a big thing that um, I think is helpful is for us to all shift our mindsets. Like, it's not like you um, have this long history of dating and it not working out. It seems like um, you deliberately tried to put career first and now you're picking up the dating one. And I think there's a big sort of assumption that we need to be stressed for changes to come or for, Mm -hmm. you know, if we worry about something, it's more likely to work out in our favor. Um, But that's just not the case. I think Um, if I, you know, if you could imagine that just like your career took off, Um, and you moved out and are like, you know, living your best life um, Uh professionally, what would you do if I told you like in a year and a half from now, you would meet that person um, or, you know, you would be settled with Uh that person or whatever? Well, I would stop worrying about it. But since we're we're on the subject of, of, you know, getting personal here, let me ask you something that I am uh, deeply curious about. uh, And you can tell me if you've had this experience with a client, how do you navigate the dynamics of an Indian mother? The Indian mother. Well, tell me specifically how the dynamics affect okay. you. It's, so it's, I'll tell you. Like, I'll, so I'll tell you. You know. So my mom for for a long time. This has been a big source of stress between, like a, a source of tension between us, to the point where it led to some pretty big fights. But you know, we. I think my sister getting married like really kind of calmed her nerves. It was kind of like, oh, okay, um, it's all turned out fine. Great. You know, we get to have the big wedding. 
And I remember, you know, so one of the things that I did, and, and you know, this is a podcast I've yet to start, but um, like I'd sat down and I'd interviewed all my family members prior to the, w- the wedding. And so, you know, we made an animated short out of one of them, which I'll, I'll send to you. It's about arranged marriage and how arranged marriage I'm takes so place. Yeah. Uh, and it was with my cousin, Rama, who's like my, she's like a sister to me. Like she's like my other sister. Uh, and so I asked her, you know, to, to describe this whole process. And we talked for like a good hour. But then I got to do my mom's interview and it was the very last one I did. It was a few weeks after the wedding. I, I wanted to record these conversations because StoryCorps has an app that allows you to record conversations. And I thought, you know, like at some point, I'm never going to be able to hear these voices again. I want to make sure I have these. So I, I interviewed my grandmother and, and, you know, it was interesting because I got to learn about, um, you know, how people met. And I, I am in the process of literally crafting an idea for another podcast called How They Met Each Other, where we have a few episodes already done. Um, but then I got to my mom and, you know, I, I knew that I would be able to get her to answer this question in a way that wasn't going to be confrontational. Um, but I knew that I had to work up to it. And then by the end, I said, you know what, what is it that makes you happier than more than anything, anything in the world? And she's like seeing my kids settled. And I thought, damn it. All right. And so I asked her, I said, does it make you unhappy that I'm, I'm not married or settled? And she said, no. She said, the truth is that I am worried uh, about who's going to take care of you when we're gone. And I, it was for the, for the first time I realized, I was like, wow. So the you know, way in which this issue was brought up has never been particularly, you know, etiquette driven. And at the same time, her intentions are actually quite good. Um, so mm-hmm. that is the dynamic. And I, I, in all honesty, I think every Indian, you know, anybody who has an Indian parent who is single um, has felt this from their parents. I can tell you that. Yeah, I have a, a several Indian uh, friends and uh, patients as well. And I think the same, you know, obviously it's, there are differences in each community, but I, I think the same holds true in other uh, communities. I certainly see this in the uh, religious Jewish communities and other religious uh, communities as well. Um, but I, I think what you're describing in terms of talking to your mom about this is actually um, a big thing that I think is like, if I was going to prescribe something um, as a way to build closeness, both um, with your date and also with people that you care deeply about, like your mom, it mm-hmm. wouldn't be like these games that we were talking about or, you know, uh, insults or, you know, but it would be um, really like validating. And I talk a lot about exactly how to do that in the book, but this is like exactly what people want in life is like oh. feeling seen, heard, understood, accepted. And I really liked, I, I keep referencing this to patients, actually, um, the Chris Voss interview talked about like the way one of the, um, ways that he became successful or the, pivoted careers to become a hostage negotiator from being a police officer was through doing suicide prevention training. And the biggest thing that you learn at suicide prevention training, I know because I've done this myself, that was sort of how I decided to be a psychologist. I started out on the crisis hotlines, um, is tons and tons of validation. So I think it's a normal dynamic that like, if a parent says you need to get married already, you, um, sorry, I don't do accents well, but, uh, that was yeah, just how a, <laughs> how a Jewish mother would say it. Um, yeah. but you know, you need to get married already. Uh, Srini, it's time. Um, we'll find someone for you, you know, to really validate and say, I know you're worried about me. Uh-huh. And validation doesn't mean that you agree with what you don't agree with. It means you find the kernel of truth or like, I kind of feel like it's, um, could be analogous to, you know, finding like money in the sand. You, you mm-hmm. sort of have to hit like what's true in like a, a pile of like things that aren't true. Um, yeah. But once you really understand at that level, and so to really even engage your mom in a conversation about that, and I wonder if that would be really beautiful if like, she would understand that you're like doing really well and like, she doesn't need to worry about you. And then she, or you could even, I, I talk a lot about with my patients about having their parents express things in a way that's more helpful rather than you feel like not only do you have to manage your own stress about meeting someone, but you have to manage right. your mom's and how to sort of address that. 
Yeah. Well, let's do this. Um, I know that you talk, uh, you know, specifically, and like I said, I think the, the thing that struck me most was so much of this was backed by research, but you talk quite a bit about, you know, in these next few sections about sort of regret, choosing wisely and settling. And I, I think that the thing that I wanted to spend some time on is this idea of settling, because I, I think that when I ended, you know, all the previous relationships that I did, I just kind of knew I was like, this is me settling. If I if I stay in this situation, I'm going to settle for what I don't actually want. Uh, and I know this because I like, like I can't see a future with this person. So I want to talk about this idea of settling and, and sort of um, one, you know, how you avoid it. But what does the science show about all of this? Well, um, settling in my mind is sort of like avoiding discomfort. It's like you're choosing something um, comfortable now. Like, for example, if someone's in a relationship and or they meet someone and they don't want to be single and they just sort of decide to make it work, they're kind of avoiding um, the anxiety of starting over. Uh, you know, like I'm seeing a client right now. I, I see a lot of different clients and anything I say, I would obviously say in um, non-identifying terms, but someone that's very unhappy in their marriage, but they're uh, very reluctant to separate because they feel like it's going to be so much work. And so they're settling by staying together in this relationship that's not working for them. Or, and I have a lot of friends that are sort of settling for relationships with someone that they, let's say a friend of mine wants something more serious. The person just wants to be friends. And so when we settle, we're sort of avoiding, um, experiencing our emotions and letting them be informants in our life. Mm -hmm. We're sort of choosing like a lower dose of pain right now that's creating a long-term dose of pain. And um, science is increasingly showing that something called experiential avoidance, which is like basically avoiding our experiences, um, is really kind of at the root of a lot of problems. So, um, and I, I just want to like uh, say, that, you know, I think some people are perfectionistic and what they consider settling is not yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, you, you know, we have to settle that people will be imperfect. Um, that being said, like if, you know, if you could get really clear, um, I really invite you to get really clear on what matters most to you and, um, you know, pick like really like what are the things that really, you know, you need and in your, you know, heart of hearts and not settle around those things and really realizing like you could weigh the pros and cons of settling versus the pros and cons of choosing courage. Um, yeah. you know, in, in the specific situation. But I, I do think uh, we all need to sort of like realize that we're stronger than we know and be our own like, you know, best friends and not let us perpetuate, you know, a situation that's not great. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that makes a sort of perfect segue to, to going into, the, you know, the, you have an entire chapter about what you want. And I think you make a really interesting distinction between values and goals. And I was wondering if you could elaborate on that. And also, you know, you also make this distinction that searching for love and acting loving are very two different things. Yeah. So uh, values is sort of like how you show up and a goal is what you get. Um, and so if you like, you know, value being loving um, and a goal is getting a second date, um, those two things might be at odds because, you know, you can act in a way that's not kind and get another date, but you, uh, um, or if you value learning, you know, and the goal is to get a good grade, those things might be at odds. And the thing that's, um, inspiring is that the values are within your hands and you, you know, you choose, you can only choose how you show up and you can't necessarily like, um, guarantee that you're going to get your goals regardless. And so I think it's really empowering when people feel like things are out of their hands to really think about like, what do I want my life to stand for? How do I want to show up? And that's much less anxiety provoking than worrying about, does this person like you? It's like your business is your business. It's how like what you're bringing to the table. And, um, 
how you're behaving and that's empowering. And so, um, all, all in all in our life, I think, you know, it's so tempting to like judge ourselves based on how we perform at work or how much money we make or, um, who likes us and, you know, what promotion we got. But I think if we really shift gears and focus on, um, how we're behaving in our character and that trumping sort of all else, um, that's really like a much freer space to live in a much more long, like, uh, it'll work for you long-term. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of, you said that the second part of the question was acting loving versus feeling loving. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, um, I think a lot of people expect like the feeling of love to just like arise like you meet this person and again like coming back to some of the stuff we talked about earlier that's like actually more of a feeling of lust that's just like a lot of like emotion mind what I call in the book and I I talk a lot about it's just like pure emotion it's not backed with reason um and I think right now especially with you know technology and these apps it's like people aren't really exercising the muscle of feeling love and how we um act affects how we feel Mm -hmm. so there's a big sort of um a lot of research about like you feel something because you behave a certain way, you know, like if you change how you behave, you can feel totally different. It's remarkable to me, but there's like a treatment I I love. This is like one of my favorite things to teach people. Like when you're sad, you naturally, um, you know, maybe you're tend to withdraw or lay low and, um, don't do some of the things you might use to enjoy or do things that are difficult, like take on a new project. Um, and one way out of sadness is not like an antidepressant. It's more powerful than an antidepressant. It's like creating a schedule, um, full of activities for pleasure and mastery. So doing what you would do if you didn't feel sad and that's Mm -hmm. as effective more so than antidepressant. And so people have this thing where they're like in a relationship and they're like, not necessarily like feeling it anymore. Um, but maybe they haven't been like putting in the work and obviously you shouldn't put in the work if you feel like you're settling somehow, or you don't have the similar uh, values. But if you just like aren't putting in much effort, uh, you know, that's part of like the, you know, maybe that's something that you learned understandably, if you have had relationships that don't work out that you'd rather, um, put in minimal effort because you don't want to get hurt. Um, then that's not going to really create the space of feeling loving. There's a, you know, in couples therapy, that's more behavioral focused and science-based, people are prescribed for homework, like caring gestures. Like you have to bring your partner, uh, you know, their favorite cup of coffee in the morning uh-huh. um, and look them in the eye and, you know, validate them, which are all behaviors that fuel love. It's like the, the action can come before the feeling, mm-hmm. but I don't want you to start trying that trick um, <laughs> if it's not if it's not someone that you really want to be with, if it's like forced and settling. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that you, there's one interesting side note on that. You said scheduling activities where the only redeeming element was the possibility of finding a partner didn't help my self-compassion or fuel my hope. And it, you know, I was having this conversation with a friend the other day who was like a downhill mountain biker. And he's like, yeah, he's like, and you know, we're both having surfers and he's like, yeah, neither of these places are, are good opportunities to meet women. And I kind of, it's, you know, like I, I don't look at these activities as a way of meeting women. I look at these things that I do for their own sort of intrinsic value. Um, because I enjoyed them so much. I was like, I'm not going to let a woman dictate whether I do these things or not. Um, but there's something else. There are two things you said here is that so much in our culture reinforces the idea that a relationship is everything, but just as it's a financially smart move to have a diversified portfolio of investments, the more you strive to make as many aspects of your life as meaning as possible, the more satisfied you'll feel. And then you also make note of the fact 
that watching one too many romantic comedies can drive us to look to fill our sense of worth and meaning through a relationship. And so you've got these sort of dynamics at play in culture, right? And we all consume lots of media. We all watch TV. We all listen to podcasts. We have our Instagram feeds. How do you navigate that dynamic of, you know, this sort of pop culture narrative of the fact that this is like, you know, what defines you as a person and who you are and deal with that without losing your mind? Yeah, I mean, I think this is really, really tough. I think um, getting really clear about your values and seeing what's getting you away from like your intuition and your gut and your like wise mind and trying as best you can to sort of, of course, we're part of this culture. But if you realize that like, you know, reading this, like looking at Instagram all day is or following these certain people um, is affecting, you know, your sense of wisdom and um sense that life is about a diverse portfolio and about more than just a person, uh, then I would certainly suggest like, you know, took, you know, along Cal Newport's lines of being sort of strategic with your consumption of, of social media and especially, you know, other forms of media, like you don't need to, you know, watch, you know, in the same way that I think, um, I mean, this is not a fair comparison, but, you know, just like violent movies don't uh, inspire me. I, I, I wouldn't, uh, you know, as much as you can, obviously we're part of this culture, but if yeah. there's something that, you know, is making you feel worse then you could certainly try to cut that out of your life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that that was one of those weird after a few bad relationships. I remember a friend told me that you have this Hollywood Disney version movie of what this is supposed to be like. And believe it or not, one of the first things I did, like I was like, okay, that's it. I stopped watching romantic comedies after that. And it was one of those things where I was like, oh, okay, interesting. Like I didn't realize how much that alters your perception of, of how this should play out. Um, because it's so deeply embedded in us from such an early age, like from Disney princesses on. I'm sorry. Hello. Yeah. Are you there? Hello? I'm so sorry. I just lost you. Yes, I just lost you for a second. No worries. No worries. I'll, I'll oh, uh, okay. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, and I really think, you know, a big part of um, the message that I teach is like, we can't just focus on feeling good. We need to get good at feeling. And uh -huh. um, I think this movement to just like have this perfect relationship where someone like feels like your life up and so it takes it from like good to great is just not a realistic thing and we need to get good at feeling and you know any you know it's funny when I um wrote my book people that were married started telling me that my sequel should be how to be married and happy um and so I <laughs> I think um you know I think uh the less we sort of ascribe to the, these like crazy arcane myths. And it's interesting because especially as someone that um, is from a culture with arranged marriages, you must see all the time that, you know, um, it doesn't have to be, you know, I think that both sides are true. Like you, you can kind of like, you, you don't have to marry anyone, but it also doesn't have to be Hollywood perfect. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I think I want to bring this full circle by talking about, I think, the very last part of the book where you talk about loneliness. But I, I think that, you know, you identified four sort of key things that make people feel lonely, judging ourselves, judging others, judging our time and judging the importance. And um, I was wondering if you'd expand on this, because I think this this loneliness thing is really an interesting challenge that we're, we're all facing. You know, like I, I remember once I was telling my friend, I was like, you know, tens of thousands of people listening every week. And there are days when I feel incredibly lonely because uh, I started to see that like we're so often not connecting with people in person and yet we could be connected to a million people on the internet. And it feels like we're in sort of a loneliness epidemic at this point. 
We really are. And it's, it's really awful because loneliness is like one of the worst things for our health. It's worth, worse than smoking in terms of like a risk to our health. Um, loneliness predicts longevity more so than um, things like cigarette consumption and also like uh, improves our, you know, emotional well-being. As we all know, like loneliness is kind of subjectively the worst feeling. And so loneliness has a lot to do, this is really interesting to me, with how we think. And like if we're with a bunch of people and thinking like, oh, these aren't my close friends, like these are people I just met, automatically we're going to increase our sense of loneliness and maybe reduce the possibility for closeness with new people. And I think in this time where it's so tempting to just like go home and text rather than like go out and with someone face to face when that requires driving through traffic and maybe dealing with some social anxiety or feeling a little stressed about not, you know, getting all your work done because you're putting time into the relationship. I, I really think people need to think through what thoughts are getting in the way of their connection and what behaviors might be getting in the way because um, research on ways to reduce loneliness are really focused on like lonely thinking is one of the biggest causes of loneliness and even just going on social media and seeing friends got together without you or people seem like they're having a better time or, um, uh, you know, the people that you're with aren't, aren't, you know, whatever sort of judgment aren't as, um, interesting as you are or something, or you're too busy. All those thoughts are just getting in the way of uh, getting close to people. And at the end of time, I think the thing that is most correlated with happiness is feeling really connected to people. And that's what people most want. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if we go back to these, these sort of four concepts, right. Of judging, right. Uh, the things that you were talking about, you know, others are time, uh, each one of those things. I mean, how do you like, what role do those play? I mean, judging ourselves, I think is really the first one. Where, where I want to start. And I guess, you, you know, lonely thoughts is really kind of where that comes in, right? Yeah. And judging ourselves. I mean, I think if you're, even if you're in a, like having a conversation with someone face to face, um, if you're thinking like, what am I going to say next? Or what do they think of me? That's really lonely. Um, and mm -hmm. so, uh, you know, a big thing that I prescribe in the book is a lot of self-compassion and a lot of participating, like throwing yourself into the experience because you're sort of just like watching yourself and you're not like totally with whoever you're with. Um, that's not going to be really fulfilling. And then that's going to be sort of like punishing. You're not who, who wants to be around people. Um, and that's something that's totally easy to overcome. It just takes practice of like catching yourself. Okay, there goes the thought of me thinking that I sound stupid. And there goes me like coming back to this moment and listening to this person and really engaging. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, judging ourselves. I think we do this like so often. And yeah. um, it's also, you know, something that is so uh, easy to treat with uh, effort. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And again, I think if we sort of shift gears and make this about like our values rather than like other people's perceptions, which is just a goal. Oh, did I lose you? Yeah, I'm here. Oh, sorry. So, right. to, so uh, oh, yeah. So to show, to really focus on like, can can we like, if we're living according to our values, we don't have to like worry about what other people think of us. That's kind of none of our business. Yeah. So. You know, as we come full circle here, I think there's something that I wanted to come back to. And you were talking about sort of the art of seduction and, uh, you know, this idea that, like, if you really want a fulfilling relationship, like you want to play games. And this is something that I, I remember I, I noted this because I thought, well, wow, this is interesting because I've seen this play out in my own, own you know, life and my own dating life with the girls that I've dated. People are more responsive to intermittent reinforcement, someone who is available than not, you know, someone who is you know, available than not than they are to continuous reinforcement. There's something about not knowing when we'll receive the next reward or text that makes us stay focused and excited. Inconsistency keeps us attentive and trying. Uh, and, you know, and yet on the flip side of that, you basically said you did the exact opposite of that, it sounded like, when you're meeting your husband. And so, I mean, you know, look, we've had every 
psychologist and persuasion expert, you know, under the sun here at Unmistakable Creative. And like, I know there's a grain of truth to what you say. So how do you balance that with actually dating somebody and, and, you know, not seem like a giant jackass? This is like a a really tough question and it's, it's important, but I think if we do have like lives that are really full and um, a relationship is just like an added benefit, like you're a full one and a relationship is a plus one, not like you're half a person until you meet your soulmate. um, It's a lot easier to do that because like, if you're living your best life, you can't see the, you, you don't have time to text the person like all day, every day, or see them tomorrow. If you saw them, you know, two days ago, because you're like really plugged into your life. And I mean, I think it's very tempting when you meet someone to like drop everything for said person. But I think the more you can stick to sort of like living wisely and holistically in terms of like all the different domains that, um, in your life space that are needed tending to like, like that, you don't need to play games. You just need to play by like, sort of like your life rules, uh, you know, it's, it seems like someone's not very attached to their life if they're like canceling on everything to, you know? Um, yeah. So I think just naturally, if you're sort of doing, um, being true to you, you know, you won't be able to see this person like 50 times, but I I think, and I think it's really, you know, um, there's something to be said about a lot of women that I see tell me that it's so nice when they go on a date and someone says, I haven't had a nice time and I'd really like to see you again, that that's like, you know, just more evidence that like being kind is, um, is not only good for like you and your soul, but also good for connecting. Mm -hmm. So I want to ask you one more question before we wrap things up. I know we're, we're well close to an hour here. Um, you know, that made me think about the, the attachment book and about attachment styles. And like, you know, I remember looking and I was like, Oh God, I'm like, this is annoying. I have an anxious attachment style. Uh, and it was like, and their suggestion to mitigate that is specifically that it's like, okay, if you're not hanging at all on one person, but giving multiple people a chance, you're not going to be as anxious about the whole situation. And I wonder, um, as a therapist and a psychologist who wrote this book, what do you think about that? You know, I, I do have a study that I quote in the book about mindfulness leading to changes in your attachment style. So I think even just being aware of like, um, that, uh, vulnerability is huge. And, um, there's a lot more in the book about how, you can sort of like override your history and override like an anxious attachment style or even an avoidant one through um, being super present and also getting really clear about what you want your life to be about. Mm, Amazing. Well, uh, I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I love this question. So I, I have been thinking a lot about this and I think what makes someone unmistakable is someone who is willing to pursue um, their best life, even when it's really hard. Um, and I have a couple of examples. I, you know, the therapy I specialize in was created by someone who, um, her name is Marsha Linehan. And if you look up in the New York Times, she uh, was suicidal herself and engaged in self-harm and spent like years in uh, psychiatric facilities and totally struggled and then created this treatment that, um, has saved hundreds of thousands of lives um, uh, called dialectical behavior therapy. So I think someone's unmistakable when they like defy um, the narrative that they have about themselves and what's possible and create something that not only is meaningful to them, but meaningful to society at large. One other example is a friend of mine who I was thinking a lot about. Um, 
when I was thinking about who's unmistakable to me. And um, his name is Richard Bernstein. And he was born blind and he became a lawyer against all odds. And he's an Ironman triathlete. And so he's like another striking example of someone who totally accepted their circumstances and didn't let that, um, you know, uh, sort of like didn't hold their lives hostage, but just let them live. And I, I know so many people are struggling and I hope um, to quote Hafiz to show you in loneliness or in darkness, the astonishing light of your own being. And if you can sort of have faith in yourself and be willing to put in the work, you could do something that not only helps you, but humanity at large. Mm, amazing. Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us uh, and share your story and your wisdom and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, uh, your work, the book and everything else that you're up to? Um, my website is Dr. Jenny Tates, uh, D-R-J-E-N-N-Y-T-A-I-T-Z.com. Um, and uh, my book is on Amazon, How to Be Single and Happy. And this is the book that I wish someone gave me uh, when I was single. And it's uh, for people that are struggling in being unhappy in their current relationship and afraid of being single or someone that has been having a hard time dating. Um, and yeah, thank you. I'm, I always love hearing from readers. So you're welcome to reach out to me uh, on my website. Awesome. And thank you for the work you're doing, Serena. This is really cool. Oh, well, thank you. And for everyone listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. 
head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.